Welcome everyone to the Real News Network podcast. My name is Maximilian Alvarez. I'm the editor-in-chief here at the Real News, and it's so great to have you all with us. Before we get going today, I want to remind y'all that The Real News is an independent, viewer and listener-supported, grassroots media network. We don't take corporate cash, we don't have ads, and we don't put our reporting behind paywalls. We have a small but incredible team of folks here who are fiercely dedicated to lifting up the voices from the front lines of struggle around the world. But we cannot continue to do this work without your support, and we need you to become a supporter of the real news now so just head on over to the realnews.com forward slash donate and donate today it really makes a difference earlier this month at the intercept journalist daniel bogoslaw published an explosive investigative report titled cnn runs gaza coverage past jerusalem team operating under shadow of idf censor This report confirmed many of the suspicions U.S. viewers and readers have long had about major media's coverage of Israel's war on Gaza since October 7th and its longstanding coverage of Israel's 75-year occupation of Palestine, providing a smoking gun, as it were, regarding the demonstrably pro-Israel slant to the network's reporting. As Bogoslaw writes, quote, Whether reporting from the Middle East, the United States, or anywhere else across the globe, every CNN journalist covering Israel and Palestine must submit their work for review by the news organization's bureau in Jerusalem prior to publication under a long-standing CNN policy. While CNN says the policy is meant to ensure accuracy in reporting on a polarizing subject, it means that much of the network's recent coverage of the war in Gaza and its reverberations around the world has been shaped by journalists who operate under the shadow of the country's military censor. Like all foreign news organizations operating in Israel, CNN's Jerusalem Bureau is subject to the rules of the Israel Defense Forces censor, which dictates subjects that are off-limits for news organizations to cover and censors articles it deems unfit or unsafe to print. As The Intercept reported last month, the military censor recently restricted eight subjects, including security cabinet meetings, information about hostages, and reporting on weapons captured by fighters in Gaza. In order to obtain a press pass in Israel, foreign reporters must sign a document agreeing to abide by the dictates of the censor. CNN's practice of routing coverage through the Jerusalem Bureau does not mean that the military censor directly reviews every story. Still, the policy stands in contrast to other major news outlets, which in the past have run sensitive stories through desks outside of Israel to avoid the pressure of the censor. On top of the official and unspoken rules for reporting from Israel, CNN recently issued directives to its staff on specific language to use and to avoid when reporting on violence in the Gaza Strip. The network also hired a former soldier from the IDF's military spokesperson unit to serve as a reporter at the onset of the war, end quote. It's been over three months since the October 7th Hamas-led attacks in southern Israel, designated as Operation Al-Aqsa Flood, 
culminated in the brutal killing of over 1,100 people, including nearly 700 Israeli civilians, hundreds of security forces, and dozens of foreigners. Hamas forces also captured around 250 hostages from Israel during the attack. Since then, however, over the past three months, Israel's scorched earth assault on the Gaza Strip has wrecked a kind of devastation unseen in the 21st century. And true to form, major Western media outlets have continued to provide cover for Israel's crimes, regurgitating government and IDF-fed talking points, lies, and half-truths, suppressing Palestinian voices, painting a lopsided picture of the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians as either entirely justified or too, quote, complex or murky for people of conscience who are understandably horrified by what they're seeing to take a position on. At the same time, though, something is clearly changing in the Western media sphere. With growing numbers of audiences, especially among the younger generations, getting their news from social media, independent media, and other sources beyond the umbrella of what in years past was called the mainstream media. The past three months have not only been distinct in terms of the level of devastation that Israel and its military have wrought on the Palestinian people, but this moment in history has also been defined by an intense battle over the truth, over the narrative about Israel about Palestine, about October 7th, about the occupation and the lives and humanity of all involved. As media critic Adam Johnson recently wrote in his monthly column for The Real News Network, quote, As the staggering number of civilian deaths in Gaza grows every day, and as fresh reports of Israel's brazen attacks on mosques, hospitals, churches, refugee camps, and other civilian targets come across our social media timelines every few hours, there's a mounting urgency among Israeli officials, pro-Israel groups in the U.S., and the U.S. media and political establishment that's backing these manifest war crimes to downplay the horrific mass killing of Palestinian non-combatants. With polls showing that a majority of voters, including 80% of Democrats, back a ceasefire, putting the vast majority of Democratic politicians at odds with their own constituents, Excuses are needed to justify and hand wave away the reports of carnage coming out of Gaza every day. End quote. So, what is happening here? How have Western media outlets responded to the carnage over the past three months? Is it more of the same, or is something actually changing here? For the Real News Network podcast, I got to sit down with Daniel Bogoslaw and Adam Johnson to take stock of major media's coverage of Israel's war on Gaza over the past three months. Adam Johnson hosts the Citations Needed podcast and writes at the column on Substack as well as for publications like The Nation and The Real News Network. Daniel Bogoslaw is an investigative reporter based in Washington, D.C., his interests include corporate corruption, congressional and White House investigations, American influence overseas, and organized labor. Prior to joining The Intercept, Daniel worked at The New Republic, The American Prospect, and as a firefighter in the Pacific Northwest. Here's my conversation with Daniel and Adam, recorded on Friday, January 13th. 
Well, Dan Bogoslaw, Adam Johnson, thank you both so much for joining me today on the Real News Podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me and us. Yeah, thanks for having us, the collective us. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, you know, I'm I'm a big, big fan of your guys' respective work. And of course, Adam, I get the pleasure of working with you, uh, editing your fantastic media criticism column that we publish at the Real News Network every month. And um, Dan and I have, have uh, bumped into each other at the Breaking Point studio, and I've had my eye on his great work at The Intercept and beyond for a while now. So it's really exciting to get you both on the podcast today. Uh, and you two were the, the the guys that I was thinking of when I wanted to kind of talk about the subject that we're going to talk about today, right? Which is, of course, the you know mainstream media coverage of Israel's war on Gaza, the October seventh Hamas led attacks uh, three months ago, and you know all the carnage that has unfolded ever since. Um, because that's, you know, really what, what y'all have been, you know, covering of late, right, is, um, you know, analyzing the ways that our major media outlets are, you know, reporting on, and I use reporting in air quotes here, uh, you know, this, this horrifying war and genocidal assault on the people of Gaza that is happening half a world away. And so, of course, people here in the United States are uh, reliant on, you know, media to to inform them on what is happening over there. And, you know, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of propaganda. There's a lot of conditioning that can happen in that, you know, uh, uh, connection between people here and the carnage there. And, you know, this is what you guys have been reporting on. And I, before we sort of dig into some of your more recent specific reports, uh, looking at things like CNN's, uh, you know, pretty uh, ridiculous policy, uh, which Dan detailed in, in his most recent Intercept piece, which we're going to talk about in a second. But before we get there and talk about some of the specific pieces that y'all have been working on and, and topics you've been covering, I wanted to just take the opportunity, since I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have you both on this recording at the same time, I want to start and just ask you both as, you know, professionals in the media industry and people who analyze and report on that industry. Like, what are some of your general takeaways from the past three months of major media coverage of October 7th and Israel's war on Gaza? Like, you know, what what seems markedly different about the coverage that's been on offer you know, compared to like what we all grew up with. Right. And and what seems decidedly the same. Right. Because there, there is something happening here. Right. Like I remember being in uh, a hotel in Minnesota at the end of October watching PBS interview Tarek Bakoni about his book on Hamas. And in a 40 minute interview, I heard more context about what Hamas is, the history of Hamas and, and the context around October 7th and before. Like I heard more information in that one segment than I feel like I had heard over the course of an entire lifetime of consuming corporate media coverage of Israel and Palestine here in the United States. So, like I said, something's changing, but it's not as if we've had a whole 180 here. So, yeah, let's toss it to you guys, starting with Dan and then going to Adam. What feels 
markedly different about the coverage that we're getting now and what feels decidedly the same as what we've been getting all these years? I mean, I think I think it's been said before by other people um, because I I think a number of people have noticed this this shift that that something feels different this time. I mean, I think the two most notable things for me have been obviously just the the glut of horrifying images coming out on social media. I think that is is a new force that that hasn't quite existed where you have a a new scale of violence with this current conflict and you have a new scale of um, you know footage and image distribution. And I think that has led to this this other shift where you can kind of feel, um, you know, like a month by month shift where you can feel once the public reaches a certain level of of disbelief at the violence that they're seeing, you can sometimes feel the major networks, whether it's the New York Times or CNN, start to to, to attempt to to shift some of their coverage that way, whether it's in the op-ed page, whether it's just running photo spreads of the carnage in Gaza. Uh, or whether it's you know having slightly more uh, aggressive interviews with uh, Israeli spokespeople, you know, on CNN. Again, it, it's not to say that it, it fully balances out, um, you know, the the sort of party line from these different organizations. But I think that you know it, it's important to at least recognize when there is a, there is a shift happening. Try to think through what's causing it, and um, to to see that you know these places are capable of running that type of coverage. You know, they're capable. Uh, they're capable of responding to to a breakthrough, um, and it's uh, it's unfortunate that it takes the level of death and destruction and violence and 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 imagery to get them there. Um, but it also goes. But, but there's also a hopeful element there, I think, which is that you know the the public can still demand that the media shifts its coverage and supplies them um, with with more information about something that they're seeing from you know seeing on their social media accounts. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the, obviously the big difference is that in opposed to the, I guess the second closest, most deadliest was 2014 protective edge. This, the death count is over 20 times greater. Um, they, they reached the 2014 death count, I think in roughly the first week of, of this particular iteration of bombing Gaza. Uh, I believe it was, I believe the civilian death count was, was about four, 1,481, uh, and 14, in 2014, and that is that has obviously been way surpassed. The number is probably upwards of 24, 25,000 by now. I'm sure it's even higher. I think it's probably an undercount. Um, so the numbers and the sheer scale of killing, um, you know, a, a child has a le- has a leg or arm amputated every 10 minutes, or rather, I'm sorry, every 106 minutes at 10, roughly 10 times, uh, 13 and a half times a day, which is for almost 100 days straight. Uh, which is again, boards can't even begin to kind of describe that. Uh, obviously, th- thousands are still exist- live under rubble. Um, entire, you know, in northern Gaza, ninety percent of the of the uh, buildings have been destroyed or 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 severely damaged. Um, northern Gaza, Gaza is entirely uninhabitable. Farms, greenhouses, um, all have been raised. Cemeteries have been raised um, for no reason other than the erasure of the Palestinian people in those particular places. Um, and so the scale is so much different and it's so wanton and there's not even a sort of liberal pretense um you know cnn the one so one of the few kind of good things they did do is that report although i think it was maybe duplicated also by the washington post was show that 50 percent of the bombs dropped are dumb bombs so they're not even sort of faking kind of the smart precision which is always kind of bullshit anyway but it's it's like they're not even faking the the sort of liberal interventionist targeted hunt for hamas narrative in many ways western media is kind of doing that heavy lifting for them they don't even sort of bother with that um now again a lot of pro-israel western face facing english language accounts will still kind of hold on to that mythology 
Uh, but the Israeli leadership itself said quite explicitly that the goal was, quote, uh, damage, not precision, unquote. Uh, this was on October 10th, three days after uh, October 7th. So, you know, in 2014 and, uh, and 2009 and 2021, these other kind of uh, bombing raids into Gaza, um, obviously one big difference, of course, is that in those bombing raids, almost no Israelis ever died. And that's what makes the, that's one of the obviously major things that makes this different. Uh, in fact, about, uh, you know, I think it was six people, civilians died in 2014. I think one of them was of a heart attack. So we're not we're not really talking about comparable numbers to the 1,139 that died on October 7th on the Israeli side, most of whom were Israeli, um, and then a thousand additional um, militants, Palestinian militants. I think roughly is the number Israel's provided. So, and of course you have the ongoing hostage situation. So it's so much different in th those ways, and the carnage is so much worse that I think it's hard to kind of do the usual to to keep the script of the hunt for Hamas script. That isn't to say they haven't tried for the most part. I do think that the that the breaking off of the kind of human shields, hunt for Hamas kind of zombie narrative is pretty rare, but it does happen. Again, you'll get the occasional Christina Amanpour or the you know Evan Hill at the Washington Post has done some pretty good work. They 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 debunked the Al Shifa hospital uh, nonsense, um, which the New York Times never had has not had the courage to do yet, even though it's very clear based on the tweets of their of their forensic reporters that they don't believe it. Uh, but I think they've been very hesitant to pull the trigger on that. The New York Times has been much, much, much worse than the Washington Post. And by which you, you're referring to just the, you know, the IDF's like claim that Al-Shifa. Al yeah. So the IDF claimed Al-Shifa was was a was a quote unquote command and control center, Hamas command and control center, and was uh, quote unquote the beating heart of Hamas. They released this rather absurd 3D graphic that looked like it was made in Blender by a YouTube YouTuber showing this Bond villain like layer underneath Al-Shifa hospital. And of course, they raid the hospital, kill a bunch of uh, people, uh, throw a bunch of you know NICU babies off the off their life support, uh, and then they say, and then they do did what they thought they could do because again, there's some debate about whether or not they even believe their own bullshit. I think some probably did. I don't think some. I think some just kind of knew they were fudging it, uh, similar to weapons of mass destruction. I think it was a combination of both. And then they get there, and it's like a tunnel that doesn't even attach to the hospital with like a few metal cots. It looks nothing like what was presented. And then they tried to like leak it selectively to show it. Then they blew it up, said, oh, we got to blow it up. You got to move on. So uh, Washington Post debunked that, which again, I, I think that um, they do, they do some veering off the script. But for the most part, as we found in our analysis, the the the, the asymmetry of coverage and bias is still very much there. I, I think, but I, I think the sheer kind of, I think for the longest time, Israel tried to, and I think for, for, for good reason on their part, they tried to play into this liberal interventionist war on terror uh, sort of ostensibly humanitarian framework. And I think that over the last 10 years, as the right wing has become totally codified and, and began to kind of exist in its own Trumpian bubble, they really don't give a shit about that anymore. Yeah, I, I want to I jump on that exact point too, though, because I think that uh, that brings up another key part of what's different this time around, which which is is the fact that if, if you look at what members of Congress who are trying to find a way to press back without alienating, you know, the support of APAC or more conservative voters uh, on this issue, the the chief line over and over again in every press release is Netanyahu's, you know, government. Right. And so I think part, there has been a little bit of a break in, in suffocation around this issue because uh, as people look for a way into this who who maybe haven't haven't been critical of Israel in the past um you know Netanyahu's actions are from from a standpoint even of the liberal interventionist sense uh 
counterproductive for U.S. regional interests. I mean, his destabilization um, of Israeli politics and Israeli society actually makes it more difficult, I think, for for the U.S. to do business with Israel. And I think that's created a, a small gap for um, certain criticism. Now, I think if you look at at his uh, so-called political opponents, you know, in in the Israeli center or center left, there's there's not much daylight between their policies. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a unity government, um, right? But I still think that there is an opening there that some yeah. people have tried to exploit, and and you can make the argument either way that okay, well, that opens up more critical coverage. You can also make the argument that it actually distracts from from a pure critique of of the long you know Israel's long standing um, human rights abuses in Gaza. But either way, I think there there is more. Uh, critical coverage. And, and you know, maybe it's a bad thing that some of it is purely directed at him. But again, I think that that's another change this time around. Yeah, I think a, a lot of I know a lot of Palestinian activists have written uh, that they prefer the the sort of Netanyahu of, of the world because they dispense with the pretense of liberal Zionism. And in many ways, uh, you know, which is not a position I necessarily endorse, but one can understand it because it's I think it's more honest. And what's made the last three weeks, uh, three months kind of jokerifying is that liberal Zionists in the United States and just liberals in general are are having a totally different conversation than what's actually going on in the ground. I mean, it is, it is, they, they are imagining, I mean, you see this initially with people like Ro Khanna, Elizabeth Warren. I know Ro Khanna's come around to a ceasefire position, but there was this obsession with like, okay, and Bernie Sanders still has this position. I and mean, is it a totally immoral and untenable position? This idea that there's some artisanal humanitarian bombing of Hamas they can do that they support in principle. So they don't want to call for a ceasefire. They just want them to change tactics. And it's like, well, okay, but after... A bespoke bombing of Hamas. Uh, more, yeah, basically, uh, you know, farm to table. And it's like, at this point, you'd say, okay, well, clearly that's not going to happen. So at this point, you need to shit or get off the pot. Either you oppose the war that exists in reality, uh, or you support the war that exists in reality. There's not really a third option here, and, and certainly not one that's going to reveal itself mysteriously. Um, and you really saw this 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 exposure of some of the tensions within liberal Zionism that have obviously existed for decades, uh, and and there was this desire to to maintain this pretense that this was at all about Hamas. And I wrote this, you know, in the Nation, I guess, about six weeks ago at this point. But this hunt for Hamas narrative that existed entirely in American media because it does not exist in Israeli media. Like to be clear, like if I mean I don't speak Hebrew, but if you read sort of. Uh, there's a lot of people on social media who will translate for you if you read Israeli media, if you read English language Israeli media, of, of which, of course, there's a lot. Um, they're not having this this conversation about precision, um, artisanal, you know, missile firings to get the baddies. It, it is a for it is it is a almost agreed upon consensus. And in fact, to the extent to which the government has been criticized, it's been criticized for not being collective punishment enough. Uh, that collective punishment is the strategy, and that this is that the response needs to be Bronze Age in its character. Uh, and that is just not the narrative we get in the United States. And 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 trying to reconcile those two totally different world, uh, totally different narratives, has led to some pretty, uh, I think, goofy. Uh, and it's it strains cognitive dissonance and it strains credulity. Um, and it's important that we be honest about that. And I think over the last few weeks, we've seen, you know, official liberal voices. Michelle Goldberg has made this point. Peter Beinert's made this point in the New York Times that. I don't want to be like a hipster, but they're, I think they're a little late to the party, 25,000 you know, plus dead. But it's good that people are finally saying, look, this this idea that liberal Zionism can reconcile with what's going on against in Israel is, is simply not uh, true. It's just based on a total, uh, totally alternative facts, as liberals used to criticize Trump for saying. And, and, and I think that that's finally becoming at least a little bit more mainstream that people recognize that. Now, to the extent to which they, could, they think they can kind of 
bifurcate Netanyahuism uh, from the broader kind of project of Israeli occupation and siege of Gaza and the West Bank, I I, I, I tend to think that that is that is an issue of um, that is a difference without much of a distinction. Right. Well, and, and like, again, just because we live in the world, we've seen how this shit goes uh, time and time again. Like we can see the writing on the wall that that is going to still be the like option of first resort. Right. Which is to try to paint this humanitarian catastrophe as somehow more a product of Netanyahu's government than the it's 25,000 oopsies. Right. Than the 75 year brutal occupation of Palestine, right? You know? I mean, I, th I think that's where the, the genocidal rhetoric was hard to reconcile. I think that was really the thing that made it where I was like, every single time a minister would say it, come out and say, we're doing Nakba 2023 as the agriculture minister came out. The intelligence minister wrote an op-ed in the Jerusalem Post on, on November 19th, uh, lobbying for forcible population transfers into the Sinai and into, in, into other quote unquote Arab countries. You saw um, obviously, you know, the defense minister talk about how he doesn't, you know, he doesn't, he's, it's, it's about, um, he, we're fighting human animals. Uh, we saw the president talk about how there's no distinction between civilian and, I mean, almost very overtly genocidal rhetoric. Every single time you'd bring that up, some savvy, cool foreign policy guy would come along and say, oh, that's just, that's just locker room talk. That's just rhetoric. And it's like, I don't know, like maybe the one or two would be, even though it's still genocidal rhetoric, right? Because again, Muammar Gaddafi, in 2011, Muammar Gaddafi referred to his enemies as cockroaches. And that that line in and of itself was seen as evidence of genocidal intent in the Western media by Samantha Power, by Susan Rice, that line and that line alone. Now, whether or not he had genocidal intent, we can debate that. But that line was the evidence used to say that the, Libya was about to commit genocide and justify NATO airstrikes. I, Israel's done that 100x at this point. And yet we all sit around bumfuzzled, so like, ah, maybe they're being ironical. And it always reminds me of that sketch, I forget it, where the guy says, uh, you know, this controversy is, is absurd. Those those murders were obviously ironic. And it's like, and, and, you know, I think it's some gangster rapper parody or whatever. And it's like, this is, there's, at some point, it's not ironic. At some point, it's not locker room talk. At some point, it's clearly, especially when you combine it with the actual killing of 20 fucking 5,000 people and the displacement of 2 million people living in tent cities, all of which, again, they said they were going to do. And of course, every them actively lobbying for forcible population transfers, which is also known as ethnic cleansing. Well, and there's like uh, an echo there, too, right, of I'm sure folks listening to this can hear it themselves, right? There's there's an echo of how the media dealt with Donald Trump, right? And I yeah. want to be very clear, I'm not equating these two things, but the 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 trope that is being used here is is very similar to what you're describing, Adam. Take him seriously, don't take him literally, right? Take him seriously, don't take him literally. That, that was- You probably should do both. <laughs> that was exactly like what the media was saying and what Trump supporters were sort of saying. And then, you know, like what happens when those two things converge, right? You know, then you no longer have this sort of like, you know, rhetorical netherworld to hide in when it runs up against the hard reality of the real. And like, I, I want to like circle back to that at the end, um, because I, I do want to ask about what you pointed out there, both of you, right, about how uh, the position that that Israel is in. Um, as it tries to talk out of both sides of its mouth or as the U.S. and pundits here in the U.S. try to be the other side of Israel's mouth while Israel's own officials and even its own media is saying another thing. Like what happens when you create that sort of fractured reality, one that is meant to placate the citizens of the you know imperial U.S. here in uh, in the West 
and, you know, like the uh, Israeli population over in Israel. Like, I do think that there's something really crucial there that I want us to talk about as we close out this conversation. But before we get there, I want to kind of follow up on the flip side of the first question I asked, right, where we were talking about what feels markedly different about this moment and what feels decidedly the same, right? And so we, we, we you both laid out like some really crucial points that do signal that we have entered a, a new era of sorts in the way that we talk about Israel, Palestine, uh, U.S., the United States and, and its role in the world, um, and, and even like the ways that we relate to our own media organizations, institutions, and publications in this country, right? But But like... That's all to say that, like, there still is a lot that is the same, right? There still is. A, this is what you, you guys write about a lot of the times, right? Like, here come the New York Times, CNN, USA Today, right? Here come all the the usual suspects trotting out the usual talking points and, and arguments that try to justify the crimes of Israeli occupation that have worked in the past that are not working as much now. Um, and so because th- this is like the substance of, you know, uh, some of your recent pieces, right? I mean, including this this really bombshell piece that Dan published in The Intercept on January 4th of this year with the headline, CNN runs Gaza coverage past Jerusalem team operating under shadow of IDF censor, right? I mean, so so like I want to like focus on that, right? Like what this story and what some of the the analysis that you've been doing Adam like tells us about how and where like the the major media apparatus in this in this country is still doing the work of laundering Israeli crimes and manufacturing consent for supporting Israel um, while this genocidal assault on Gaza is literally happening as we speak. Yeah, well, I mean, I can speak to the uh, sort of interesting timeline and the things the things I learned in reporting that story and, and uh, other stories about the Israeli uh, military censor um, before that one. But I, I think what was was fascinating was was one you know the policy that we reported on which which is that you know every line of of reporting about Israel or Palestine from reporters in Israel or reporters outside of Israel has to be basically passed through either the Jerusalem bureau or when the bureau is asleep a, t- a team of editors who um you know is is basically in line with the Jerusalem bureau um but this was not a policy that was implemented you know uh after October 7th after there was a shift to you know heightened interest in the region, this was a longstanding policy that 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 CNN you know told me had been in place for for a long time, um, and it was slightly modified when uh, the sort of judicial overhaul started taking place um, in July to try to bring on these these other external editors to aid with with the amount of of coverage that was happening, but um, it. it it kind of tells a story about how we got to this place and, and something that has been covered by by reporters before about the Israeli military censor 972 has has done excellent work documenting this year after year and trying to, you know, educate the public about the, um, uh, you know, the number of articles that are directly censored. Um, but it, it it shows how, you know, they say that it's a protocol to try to make sure that the editors uh, uh, who are closest to the news are the ones uh, with the hands on it, but at the same time, it also means that those editors and any reporters in Israel are, are subject to very uh, strict and explicit directives that are laid out by the Israeli military censor that talk 
and 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 um, convey exactly what reporters can and can't cover. They can't cover certain aspects of security uh, cabinet meetings. They can't cover uh, certain things about hostages being held in Gaza. They can't cover um, you know weapon systems captured by Hamas or certain details about Israeli weapon systems that are being used in the in the uh, war in Gaza. So um, each news organization has kind of has their own. Uh, a way of trying to navigate this sensor because it's it 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 is like I think bureaus all over the world in one sense where you have to you have to uh, navigate the burdens of of the government in the country under which you're operating and trying to get news out of with your uh, responsibility to readers about actually uh, relaying the truth and the facts on the ground to them um, and you know through again through the course of this story and, and other stories it, it it's become clear that it's you know, it is not a, a, a situation where, um, uh, you know, CNN is is submitting every single one of their articles to the to the Israeli military for review. Instead, it's kind of uh, a longstanding practice where reporters know where the lines are. In some cases, um, news outlets will run extremely sensitive stories that break the guidelines of the censor through bureaus outside of Israel. So it's shocking to hear that CNN's policy is to route everything uh, through Israel. Um, but it really shows the way that news coverage for a long time has been shaped uh, according, at least in part, to, to the official IDF line and the interests of the Israeli government. And I think it, it kind of educates readers who can then go back and look at CNN's coverage and and see what, you know, internal leakers said to me, which is that, you know, these protocols by uh bake you know these these protocols have baked into their system a way of expediting the IDF spokesperson's line into articles and and towards the top of articles and you know it's all it's all set up under the name of due diligence but this is the practical effect in the real world effect of this highly technical system um and you know i i think that that kind of folds into to your work and and you know the pieces that you've been putting out the uh past week um but it definitely was an inside look at a longstanding practice that's become accelerated and aggravated under more scrutiny now. Well, and and just to, before we we toss it to to Adam, just to um you know like even drive that point further home, I read um you know a chunk of your article in the intro to this podcast, Dan. But I just wanted to to read one more part that I thought was like pretty striking, uh, a pretty striking detail in your Intercept report, which we will of course link to in the show notes for this episode. Uh, but just to build on what Dan just said, to really drive that home for people listening, Dan writes, and I quote. Early in the war, on October 26, CNN's News Standards and Practices Division sent an email to staff outlining how they should write about the war. Quote, Hamas controls the government in Gaza, and we should describe the Ministry of Health as, quote, Hamas controlled whenever we are referring to casualty statistics or other claims related to the present conflict. If the underlying statistics have been derived from the Ministry of Health in Gaza, we should note the fact that this part of the ministry is, quote, Hamas controlled, even if the statistics are released by the West Bank part of the ministry or elsewhere, end quote. The email goes on to acknowledge CNN's responsibility to cover the human costs of the war, but couches that responsibility in the need to, quote, cover the broader current geopolitical and historical context of the story while continuing to remind our audiences of the immediate cause of this current conflict, namely the Hamas attack and mass murder and kidnap of Israeli civilians, end quote. So like just even in the standards that are being disseminated, right, like to other people working at CNN, 
again, right? I mean, like you can see how just these standards are shaping a very particular view of reality right now. Yeah, and, and I would just add on to that. I mean, I, I also included in that piece uh, the fact that in 2001, um, you know, at the onset of, of the war in Afghanistan, uh, the chairman of CNN sent out a, a very similar memo uh, to staff and to reporters uh, advising them to remind uh, readers at all times that no matter what type of pictures of civilian carnage they see coming out of Afghanistan, especially from Taliban-controlled areas, it was critical to remind them that that all that violence was a direct result of the attacks on September 11th. So again, similar language of of trying to tie um, uh, mass-scale civilian casualty to the root uh, so-called justification uh, uh, for that violence. Right. Yeah. Well, and of course, the root cause only goes back three months. So-called root cause. Let me talk about the Hamas-controlled smear that they sort of throw around. It fucking drives me up the wall. It is such, is one of these sort of great kind of front row kid, technically accurate things you throw out when you really know what the purpose of it is. Everybody knows what the purpose of it is, right? Everyone fakes, well, it's Hamas-controlled. Yeah. Okay. Hamas, quote-unquote, controlled figures have been verified and, and, and vouched for by Human Rights Watch by the United Nations and by the U.S. State Department for years, including, by the way, until after their uh, weird attempt in October to, to to deny them. Later, Biden supposedly apologized for that in private and has yet to do it in public. But these are not figures that anyone historically has ever actually get credibly doubted. In fact, they, they, were within, they were within a 7% margin of error in all previous conflicts with the Israelis' own numbers. Like, no one actually thinks these numbers are not accurate. So in the same breath, they say Hamas controlled. What they ought to say is Hamas controlled numbers that are vouched for by Human Rights Watch and other human rights organizations in the UN and the goddamn United States State Department. OK, so when they do the Hamas control, well, clearly what they're doing is they're doing denialism. They're acting. They're, they're sort of cat putting a little, little, little uh, uh, kernel of doubt in the brain of the reader. If they goes, oh, well, that's those terrorists. I mean, that's not that can't be accurate. You know, that that's obviously not true. And this, of course, serves one purpose and one pur- purpose only, and it's to sort of uh, sanitize the the mass slaughter that's going on. And 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 if you're going to say Hamas controlled because you want to somehow be technically accurate, okay, fine. But you have to say Hamas controlled, but vouched for by Human Rights Watch and other human rights organizations because they they have vouched for them because um, they've generally historically been proven to be accurate. In fact, in certain cases, have been have been a pretty big undercount. Um, so that's that's the first thing. The second thing is, and Daniel, I really, really like to report um, because you, you 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 sort of indicated a lot of things people had thought. That's, because censorship typically is not a direct thing. It is kind of self-censorship or more ideological. But then sometimes it is a direct thing, and it's important to say that. And, you know, CNN for years has taken millions of dollars from the United Arab Emirates. They run puff pieces on the United Arab Emirates all the time. Um, they, I've reached out to them, responsible statecraft, others have reached out to them. They refuse to sort of, I very rarely do reporting, but actually do reporting on this. Daniel, of course, actually did reporting here. Um, uh, that they they sort of rarely acknowledge that they have all these embedded conflicts of interest um, and they have obviously very sort of uh, a lot of ideological blinders that have, that have very little to do with kind of direct finality, but are part of this sort of broad social chauvinist Western brand they've built. Um, but the the but their coverage in particular, um, again with with rare exceptions, has been pretty cartoonishly 
uh, one-sided and has been for some time. Everything is filtered through this, this human shields narrative. Everything is filtered through this never forget October 7th narrative. There's this obsession with constantly bringing it up in every single context in which we see a dead Palestinian with the obvious implication being is that this response is somehow proportionate uh, and, and justified. There's this, there's this sort of Jake Tapper smarm where he's so fucking smug and he's like, well, yeah, but Hamas doesn't care about it. Okay, well, great. But Hamas doesn't control fucking Gaza. I know they sort of nominally, you know, run the fucking dog catcher department, but the air, the, the water, the, the food, the fuel, the electricity is all controlled by the fucking Israelis because it's an occupation. And if you don't believe that Gaza is part of the occupation, you can, again, reference the U.S. State Department, which refers to Gaza as part of the occupied territories. So, uh, you know, this is getting CNN's MO for a very long time. And again, in our analysis, we found that CNN was was the worst offender at this kind of asymmetry of language. One of the things we studied was the asymmetry of emotive language. Uh, when Israelis are killed, it's massacre, horrific, slaughter, brutal. Uh, when Palestinians are killed, this term is almost never used. I think we counted about six total out of out of the three major cable networks over a month period. Uh, meanwhile, we had hundreds of examples of that in reference to the, the October 7th attacks. Uh, this is just sort of one example of asymmetry. Uh, interestingly, the, there's a Canadian publication called The Breach, which asks, because the C, they did a study showing the CBC did the exact same thing. They only used slaughter and brutal and murder in the context of, of October 7th, but never did it for the for the 23, 24,000, 25,000 people killed in Palestine. Subsequently, uh, in Gaza. And the CBC's answer, which I guess they actually answered, which people rarely do, they gave this incredibly tortured and tautological response of like, well, that's different. Well, why is it different? Because it's just different. Well, I know, but why is it different? Why Why is raining a bomb down on an apartment complex where you know 30 children are and killing 30 children? Why is it any different than shooting them in, in, with a gun? And they're like, well, it's just different. They're raining bombs. And you say, well, what about the Israeli soldiers that have killed people, sniped people on video? We've seen it. You know, we've seen them shoot down people in the West Bank. So why is that not called brutal? Well, uh, and then they don't have any answer. Um, and so, again, there are many ways one can one can study and interpret this kind of bias. Again, I think showing that they directly, can, you know, work with censors in Israel is, I think, a more explicit uh, what we would sort of generally view as a kind of traditional form of, of censorship um, and, and, and bias. Um, and that's and the one thing you, you touched on, which is that in your report, which I think is something that's actually very impactful, uh, is the idea that CNN doesn't ascribe uh, any agency to Israeli airstrikes until the Israeli military themselves confirm. Now, anecdotally, I, I don't have the smoking gun like, like you do, Daniel, but if you observe ever since the Al-Ali uh, hospital bombing on October 16th, 17th, that um, uh, bombed the parking lot, killed 200 or 300 people. Uh, with, that's the kind of United States estimate. Again, 12 people have been killed by by PIJ and Hamas rockets in the, in the last 90 days. Uh, but one errant PIJ rocket, I guess, killed 250 people in one go. So I guess that was really bad luck on their part. Uh, but let's set that aside for now. Ever since that that cry bully uh, campaign by pro-Israel groups, uh, I'm I'm pretty certain, and I, I don't know for 100% sure, but the New York Times and AP never ascribe Israeli airstrikes to Israel. Uh, they they don't. Did, by the way, this is the only, this is the first time they've done this. They they didn't do that in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They don't. They didn't do that in previous conflicts. But ever since the October 17th cry bully effort by pro-Israel groups um, to you know calling up blood libel and whatnot for assuming the country that dropped fucking 
30,000 munitions on a, on a plot of land that's 141 square miles in, in, in 45 days. God forbid we assume that the explosion that kills 250 people was done by that, that party, right? 99.9% .9 of bombs are dropped by Israel, right? And then, <laughs> how could dare you accuse Israel of doing that? And then now they don't do it. They don't ascribe Israeli guilt to any of that. So the New York Times, AP, CNN, I'm pretty sure, again, I, I've looked at dozens of examples. It's a, a mysterious blast, as you know, Daniel. Uh, it is a strike, but they don't ascribe any guilt. And that guilt matters. And they saw the outrage uh, in multiple capitals, especially Muslim-majority countries, where people are ready to burn down a fucking Israeli embassies and American embassies after that bombing. And I think at that moment, they said, okay, we don't want to upset those people. So we're, we're now going to avoid the tabloid and everything is going to be put in the most anodyne and you know sort of medical terminology you could possibly imagine. Not for October 7th. But, but it really shows the breakdown. Uh, it... it, it, it... It belies the fact that they that, that they have kind of taken everything at service level from the IDF in the past, and it shows it shows you how all this coverage in the past has has just been you know routed basically through the official line. And, and it reminds me of one thing I wanted to add about my piece with one other piece of reporting, which is that CNN hired a former soldier from the IDF spokesperson's unit into into the Jerusalem Bureau um, to, to work on reporting and to work on translation. And in at least one case, as I found it in my piece, you know, basically literally acting as a stenographer for the spokesperson unit and just conveying press releases. Um, I mean, Jim Scotto worked for the Obama State Department for three years. Right. Between stints at ABC and CNN. I mean, they, it's just a revolving door. Yeah, I mean, to the extent to which it even is a revolving door. Right. And, and and they've created a smart system, which is that which is that okay, fine. We're not gonna, you know, we're gonna we're gonna put, you know, says says uh, according to the IDF at the top of every article. But you know, the the, the big component that that employees of CNN uh, said to me is that like, you know, this affects speed of reporting. If if the IDF spokesperson unit is the first person who has access to your breaking news update, yeah. and everything has to be vetted that comes out of Gaza by someone else, and there's there's no equivalent uh, effort to try to, to to verify social media or Hamas statements or anything, then just from a technical standpoint, you're going to get lopsided. Uh, news and and the directives that they sent out don't don't seem to adequately correct for them. Well, because the goal is to keep the temperature down. That that's the goal. The goal is to make sure it's not too tabloid, it's not too salacious, it's not it doesn't provoke outrage, and so everything is a strike. It's in passive voice. Passive you know, Palestinians have died. I really think that the the Al Ali hospital bombing on October seventeenth really. I, I think that that was at, up to that point, they were saying it's real bombing them because that was obvious to fucking even paying attention. And then the New York Times said, you know, says Palestinian authorities. And it was, you, you, you took a moss at their word. It's like fucking you dropped 30,000. What are you talking about? Like, why? Why is everyone so fucking small beans about this? Like, like you, it's it's just again, you're you're constantly just being gaslit into thinking that that you that by assuming that 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 this was an Israeli shell, which, again, I think it probably was. Um, rather than an airstrike, right? Um, I think has 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 turned everyone into this hyper lawyer, hyper scare. Because again, it's about you know it's sort of Noam Chomsky one one, right? It's flack that they got so much flack for that, um, and they don't want to get that flack again. Whereas there's no flack on the other side. It's not like they're gonna get in trouble for erroneously ascribing guilt to Hamas. It's not like the Hamas, you know, fucking despite what Israeli leaders tell you, there's no Hamas lobby in the United States who's gonna call them. And, and 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 piss and moan about it um and so they could again it's totally asymmetrical and um the fact that they no longer ascribed agency and headlines and there's just these mysterious blasts that emerge you know out of nowhere 
until the IDF confirms it days later. But again, by that point, the temperature's you know much lower. Well, I want to I want to actually pick up on that point as a way of rounding out, right? Because I think this brings us nicely back to the question of like um, what has changed and what hasn't. And where is all of this heading? What is the purpose of all this, right? Um, like, you know, as uh, major media outlets kind of adapt their coverage to this new moment while still trying to kind of achieve a lot of the same goals as before when they could do it more brazenly, um, you know, there there is a point to be said there about how we are changing, the public is changing and that is is kind of entering and, and changing the dynamics here in ways that I don't think, uh, you know, certainly uh, Israeli government officials or even a lot of folks in the media anticipated, um, you know, like before October 7th. Uh, or in the immediate aftermath of it, right? I mean, like, but even just what you just said, Adam, right? Like how in, uh, whether it's the, the the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, right? We are seeing that same um, recognizable trope of passive language instead of IDF shoots and kills grandma waving white flag crossing the street, Right. It's, uh, you know, clashes break out and grandma ends up dead kind of shit. Mm. Right. And, and the thing is, is that along with everything that we laid out in the beginning, like Dan was saying, you know, the, the, the influence of social media. Right. The, the the younger generations like, you know, that have not been raised. They don't they don't watch they don't watch cable. They don't read The New York Times. They've right. not been raised on these things like we have. And this, and this makes people fucking panic. But at the same time, like what has really been intriguing to me is that especially here in the West, as, again, we're all media professionals. We all swim in these waters. We all deal with this shit every day. I was literally standing in the rain down the road um, covering a Palestine march here in Baltimore a while back. And I was talking to folks, younger folks who were there and and even some older folks from Baltimoreans who were using the same arguments against Israel and the media's coverage of the destruction of Gaza that they I've seen and heard Baltimoreans use against the police department here uh, and the media that runs cover for the crimes of the Baltimore PD. Right. In the same way that younger generations over time have been trained and have trained themselves to see through the propaganda bullshit that you and Nima on citations needed have been breaking down for years, Adam. Like, like that is becoming more general knowledge to the point that when the IDF, the IDF was doing the exact same thing that local police departments here in the United States do, posing for social media photos in front of a quote-unquote drug bus where there's, like, you know, a pipe oh, that hasn't been yeah. used in in five years and, like, uh, you know, maybe $200. You of, mean you mean the miscellaneous ammo inside of the incubator? You didn't believe that? The miscellaneous ammo. Like, I mean, they did the exact... The IDF, after, like, destroying Al-Shifa Hospital and all the people in it, or a lot of the people in it, and while others had to flee, um, the IDF is literally using that those same sort of like media uh, manufactured tropes that police departments here in the United States do. And of course, there, there are actually historical and, and connective reasons for why that would be the case. But the thing, the reason I'm I'm pointing that out is just I think that that those kinds of tropes that 
people here in in the States have learned to become suspicious of for good reason, right? That has actually, I think we're seeing a sort of delayed effect here where people are applying those same media critical, uh, you know, like uh, ways of understanding what they're being told to what they're hearing coming out of Israel and the main major coverage that they're getting of the war on Gaza. Right. And so I wanted to like bring that into the conversation here and I want, and I, and we can't have this conversation. I could talk to you guys for three more hours, but we got to close it up soon, but we can't have this conversation without bringing in the OG George Orwell. Right. Because throughout all of this, I keep thinking about, Orwell's legendary essay, Politics in the English Language, which I would make all of my students when I was still teaching at the University of Michigan, I would make all my writing students read this article and we would talk about it because I think for as old as it is, it still has a lot that's very relevant uh, to our day and age now. And it also is really important as a as a form of media criticism, right? training us to have like, you know, like a sharper eye when it comes to the ways that the powers that be are presenting reality to us. And so if, if listeners will permit me, I just want to read this this quote from Orwell's uh, essay. And then I want to toss this back to Dan and Adam to close us out. But in Politics in the English Language, Orwell famously wrote, quote, in our time, Political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. Things like the continuance of British rule in India, the Russian purges and deportations, the dropping of the atom bombs on Japan can indeed be defended, but only by arguments which are too brutal for most people to face and which do not square with the professed aims of political parties. Thus, political language has to consist largely of euphemism question begging and sheer cloudy vagueness defenseless villages are bombarded from the air the inhabitants driven out into the countryside the cattle machine gunned the huts set on fire with incendiary bullets this is called quote pacification millions of peasants are robbed of their farms and sent trudging along the roads with no more than they can carry this is called quote transfer of population or rectification of frontiers, end quote. People are imprisoned for years without trial or shot in the back of the neck or sent to die of scurvy in Arctic lumber camps. This is called, quote, elimination of unreliable elements, end quote. Such phraseology is needed if one wants to name things without calling up mental pictures of them, end quote. Now, I want to toss that big, juicy quote back to you guys and and ask if you think that Orwell's assessment holds here for what for everything that we're discussing. And, and if this, you know, I think really sharp and important analysis that he offered, you know, like back in the middle of the 20th century sufficiently explains what the, you know, what Israel propaganda is accomplishing here in the United States media market. Or if like the functions of this propaganda and these these language tropes that we've been discussing for the past 45 minutes, like if there are other and equally sinister ends that are being accomplished here. Um, So, yeah, Dan, Adam, I wanted to just with that softball question, just wanted to toss it to you to get kind of some of your bigger thoughts on this before we close out. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. I'll I'll just say, like, I think 
don't know. It's interesting. It's an interesting question. I think when he was writing that, like, uh, you know, in in sort of immediate post-war period, it was still like, you know, media was still constrained. It was still constrained by by medium to, you know, radio, TV, newspapers, and and a handful of fourth estate overseers. And I think some people want to go all in on the argument that with with social media and the democratization of of footage that that we're freed from that in some degree. I think there's, as I said earlier, there's obviously some truth to that. At the same time, those platforms are still controlled by people with right. their, you know specific agendas, which we saw this week with my colleague, you know, being permanently banned at the flick of a button yep. on Twitter. But I do think that we're entering a new period where those new mechanisms of power have not fully solidified yet. Obviously, we can see their shapes. We know who who owns these different companies. Um, at the same time, I think there exists a moment when the populace is still relatively powerful and they know that their platforms are going to get, uh, there's going to be mass migration off them if if they try to shape popular sentiment, you know, too harshly, too, too quickly. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the thing that that quote makes me think of is is like, you know, the Bush era New York Times op-ed page, you know, writers, which is what I think a lot of people associate with this sort of like hegemons of the fourth estate. And, you know, if you give a Zoomer, you know, a David Brooks column, like they're going to immediately recognize that it reads like it was written by, by a fifth grader who got, you know, hit in the head with a baseball. So I, I think that it's like, okay, that, that old medium is dying that old control system is dying people will always try to constrain the news and shape it to their will and for their profit motives but i do think that it's it's worth holding this moment however fleeting it might be uh you know in the light and appreciating the the you know the the uniqueness of it maybe it's like you know the advent of the internet when there was this fleeting moment of, of belief in a utopian uh democratizing force and i think if we can appreciate it then there's a better a better chance of safeguarding it and trying to extract the useful and positive elements of it, even if it's it's doomed to to go the way of the Times op-ed page as well. Yeah, I think I think again, I think uh, I share your I share your thoughts that one wants to be too one wants to be hesitant to put too much kind of liberatory purchase to social media in terms of because we again we know governments, the Israeli government, you know, I'm sure the United States government and baddie countries, right, Russia, et cetera, they they try to manipulate social media. And I think to some to some extent they do. But I do think it's still not as much as it is for the traditional media. And when you look at the generational splits, they are splits on news source information in terms of pro-Palestinian sentiment versus the kind of and if you just watch an hour of CNN, like if you just go home and you watch an hour of CNN, the amount of sheer racist ideology you ingest, the you know human shields tropes, the 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 hiding behind you know incubator babies and uh, while while spraying machine gun fire, like all 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 which has been built over decades and decades, right? This kind of uh, war on terror and and dehumanization narratives. You just don't really get that as much uh, for obvious reasons in a TikTok or, or Twitter context. And the generational splits, I think, largely reflect that that ideology is dying. Now, the problem is, and the reason why I still criticize traditional media, uh, you know, and as, as Daniel still reports on them, is that a lot of people do still consume it and they are more likely to vote and they're more likely to be in power. Uh, and they're more likely to shape legislation and shape policy. Uh, so young people are, you know, on the streets more and they're obviously more skeptical, which is great. But they're not necessarily as politically uh, impactful relative to their proportion in society. Now, we can debate whether or not that'll change or whether or not they'll just become more older and more conservative and start flipping on MSNBC to find out their latest conspiracy theory about Trump um, or whatever kind of you know thing that poses as liberal news. And I think that that is the, uh, you know, 
that's the thing that pan makes people panic and why you you see such an upsurge in talking about uh, banning TikTok. And, and they bring in the heads of Facebook and Twitter and they dress them down in front of Congress and tell them they got to read from the script and that script and they have to ban this and ban that. You know, they'll put it in the they'll put it in terms of fighting disinformation or whatever kind of uh, sort of um, non authoritarian thing you want to frame it as. But they've been they've been doing that, obviously, for many years. Uh, and I, you know, from both the right and the left. And I think the the, the coalescing around the anti TikTok stuff as if it's sort of this mysterious thing from the Orient, you know, affecting Zoomer kids' minds and putting, planting the seeds of, of, of pro-Palestinian sentiment is, I think, going to continue to increase because I, I do think there is a sense that they are losing the narrative. Um, it's not so much right now that it matters. I, you know, I think if it costs the Democrats 2024, I think we may see more urgency around that um, in terms of TikTok disinformation or, or, or whatever. But um it is it is a profound difference when when you get your news from a source that is more raw videos and is more kind of basic information versus the official guy in a suit behind a desk telling you and and, and what you said about Orwell and you know and sort of not wanting to drop images. I, I have some criticisms of that essay, but I, I I think that that is that is the kind of essence of what of what media criticism is. It is pinpointing those things where. You're getting language and phraseology and ideological conceits that are designed to prevent you from from drawing images in your head, that that make things anodyne, that make them sanitized, and that's why when you see these charged emotive terms like massacre and brutal and uh, murder used asymmetrically, I think it gives the game away and terrorist, right? Because it, it these are not terms that describe anything. They're emotive terms. They're 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 designed to sort of telegraph your emotions for you. It's like a didactic film score, right? In a in a kind of Steven Spielberg film, um, it's sort of it's telling you where to go emotionally. Not to criticize John Williams, I think he's mostly good, but it, 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 it's sort of telling you how to feel. Whereas when Palestinians die, it is presented in that kind of cop speak, right? Um, sort of bullet enters the torso of a juvenile kind of language. Um, uh, the sort of more stark, the most stark example is is that we that we cited in our first piece was. Was David Ignatius of the Washington Post, who who said, um, uh, I'm, "I'm not getting exactly a quote here, but it's something effective like terrorists brutally murdered children on October 7th, and then he contrasted it with uh, Palestinian children left uh, left to die under bomba Israeli bombardment, left to die, implying that the Israeli parents, I guess, left them there. Um, and so you have left to die versus massacred, brutal, brutal by terrorists, and one draws up an image and one doesn't, and 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 that is." pretty much how the game works. Uh, and that's why I think trying to sort of pin down those moments where there is an asymmetry, especially when the body counts, not to put it crudely, but the body counts are 20 to one at this point. Um, you know, for every dead Israeli, you have over you have over 20 dead Palestinians. Um, again, you have more, uh, I think more people under the age of seven that have died in Gaza than you have in the totality of October 7th. And, and they don't, um, and I, I think that sort of exposes the double standard. And all, all one can really do, from, from at least from my perspective as a media critic, is to kind of complain. You know, whether or not that that impacts uh, reporting in, in general at these places. I think it does around the margins. At least I hope it does. Otherwise, my my whole life has been a waste. Um, but you know, one one thinks you can kind of shame people because I do think that people fall into these safe ideological grooves where you don't create any problems. You don't get calls from the ADL. You don't get, you know, you don't get calls from the US military and you kind of go with the groups, you know, the, this official said, that official said. And I think when you sort of show them like, hey, here's this data that says you guys are a bunch of fucking chumps, it can sort of at least around the margins create a change. Now, hopefully reforming CNN is not really the broader political project, but it is in, in, in a world where, where, where these things seem overwhelming. 
Uh, and in Super Bowl, I think it, I think it can be one thing one can do to to kind of push back. Well, yeah, and I think I think also like you know your piece, my piece, like these are concrete examples. These are not this is not media criticism from ten thousand feet. This is this is okay. You want you want to talk numbers? You want to talk facts? Here are the facts about your organization's reporting practices. Here they are in in bar graphs. Here here are the the raw numbers. Yeah. And I think that gives people on the inside. I mean, I think the other thing to say is like there are great reporters at the Times, or great reporters at CNN. Yeah, of course. Who want who who are you know straining against the institutional bureaucracy. And I think um, you know when when you give people something hard that they can hold in their hands, it gives those people on the inside you know a, a tool for for trying to push for more. Yeah, I think it's more effective than the kind of glib Jimmy Dore, like, oh, the corporate media. It's like, well, yeah, okay. But like, again, you have to sort of explain it more, <laughs> right? not just assert it, uh, because then I think it becomes, you're just preaching to the choir. So that is the great Adam Johnson and Dan Boguslaw. Adam hosts the Citations Needed podcast and writes at the column on Substack, as well as for other publications like The Nation and The Real News Network. Dan is an investigative reporter based in Washington, D.C. His interests include corporate corruption, congressional and White House investigations, American influence overseas, and organized labor. Prior to joining The Intercept, Daniel worked at The New Republic, The American Prospect, and as a firefighter in the Pacific Northwest. Daniel, Adam, thank you both so much for joining me today. I really, really appreciate it. we got to have you guys back on soon. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. And thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for caring. And please, before you go, I hope that you take away from this conversation that uh, we here working in independent media uh, need your support, too, so we can keep doing the important work of holding, you know, major media networks accountable and doing the kind of reporting and asking the kinds of questions and providing the kind of analysis that they will not. This is what Adam does uh, with his work. So please go support support that citations needed subscribe at the column this is what daniel does with his incredible work please go subscribe to the intercept and give them both follows on social media and please 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 support the work that we are doing here at the real news network we need it we don't have ads we don't take corporate cash we don't put our reporting behind paywalls we need you guys to be our supporters so we can stay independent so head on over to the realnews.com forward slash donate and support our work today. It really makes a difference. For The Real News Network, this is Maximilian Alvarez signing off. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Solidarity forever.